0: Here we go, the men podcast. I'm still gonna call it a podcast even though I've been largely absent. Man, it's tough to find time to do this stuff. Around fishing, raising kids, all that kind of stuff, but here I am, I'm back. Um, Recently back uh, from fly fishing in Chile. Of course, we missed a lot together over the last few months because I've been delinquent on this, but I got a better system now. So I think I'm going to be able to keep up on this because I, I love doing it. I love sharing some intel. But um, yeah, so Chile, Patagonia, um, interesting time to travel uh, in the midst of, you know, this COVID pandemic, which has complicated everything from uh, just vaccines and testing and uh, prerequisites for travel, um, lots of different uh Lots of different things coming at us as a you know we're a small travel broker for fly fishing we don't do you know uh, anything like the big guys like yellow dog and and flywater and whatnot but we do a fair amount of travel um, to to lodges that we know well and um, places that we're highly familiar with where we think we can offer a superior service we do it and um, where I go in Patagonia is one of those good friends with the owner there and know all the guides and Love traveling to there, but um, yeah, we had uh, we got all our paperwork in order for the most part. It was a really uh, you know, I wouldn't say uneventful trip. It was uneventful in the sense that as long as you got your you know um, your stuff done in advance, travel was frankly pretty easy. So, uh, regarding international travel, you know, for anybody listening to the podcast here that's even thinking about planning travel, don't be don't be afraid to try to take advantage. Um, you know, of, of being able to go. Um, you know, flights are a little bit more than they were, uh, but they probably haven't reached historical highs to go to different destinations. Uh, you will need to be for most countries. You, you need to be, you know, vaxed and boosted. Um, you know, to go to most places. And as long as you get your paperwork in order, it's it's not too much trouble. And then uh, I will tell you the uh, just you know, if you're planning travel, be smart. Uh, protect your investment make sure you don't you know you're not out gallivant around uh, being too social you know that couple weeks prior to going because you will need to you will need to test clean uh, before you go on one of these trips so anyway that being said chili was awesome I uh, am hoping in the podcast today to just kinda give you a breakdown of what it was like kinda fishing there I'm not gonna go you know super deep um, I think the last time I went, I missed a year, so it would have been two years ago. I gave like a really lengthy breakdown of what I did each day. Uh, so you can go back and listen to that. I don't remember what episode it was, but you can scroll back. And um, I did that at the airport coming home. But for today's podcast, um, it's going to be all about beetles, man. Because that is like my favorite thing about fishing in Patagonia is the beetle fishing. And so much of it's applicable, like the skills that you. You have to have when you're fishing. Um, I'll just say in kind of a high stakes environment, um, be, just by the pure fact that you you know you've invested a, a fair bit to get there. You want to make the most of the fishing. You want to have the greatest possible experience. Um, it, it's I it, high stakes in that sense. You, you don't go to Patagonia to spin your wheels and 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 waste time. Um, you know when I'm there, I like to fish hard. Um, you know, when we play there, we play hard. But man, I, I fish um, when I'm when I'm down there. So I think my favorite part about it is just that dry fly fishing. It's very relatable to what I do here, but it's kind of taken to a whole different level as the fish behavior is, you know, fundamentally different in South America, um, and you get to see fish behave and do things um, and act in ways that you don't often get to see them um, do here in. You know Western North America, so I'll explain more about that as we go on. But trip is great. I love the beetle fishing. The dry fly fishing there is just you know spectacular. Um, You know I think there's just something cool about fishing terrestrials to to trout on dry flies, especially in places that are you know unbelievably gorgeous like they are down south. So that being said, uh, I learned a lot, or I learn a lot when I go on these trips about dry fly fishing and um, and how to better you know counsel people or teach people for fishing even in their own backyard. So uh, the beetle fishing is definitely the highlight. Um, you know, as I look back at you know weeks worth of fishing, I'll take you through kind of the day by day and what I did and, and you know maybe you never make to Patagonia. I totally get it, um, but I'll try to explain like little tips and tools that I used on each fishery that can be applied to pretty much you know anywhere you fish whether it's you know South America or your own backyard in you know Wisconsin. The first thing that I'll make mention of what is so cool about you know there's a lot of cool things about getting to travel. I I grew up um, never even realizing or pondering the fact that people would get on airplanes to go fly fishing. I mean, I'd, I grew up super blue collar, and, and that would have been like the furthest thing from my imagination. Um, you know, but as I've been fortunate enough to work in outfitting and, and see that, you know, some of these vacation type trips that you can plan as, you know, fly fishing is the building block. There's, you know, the fly rods kind of what got you there, but then there's the, the the culture and the experience, and then just driving to and from the fisheries each day, you know, being able to... Hop in a a little diesel pickup truck, you know, or a little di- little diesel Isuzu SUV, and uh, being able to drive across a beautiful country with you know your fishing guide who's you know speaks great English and is also a tour guide and can tour you kind of around the country each day makes for just a wonderful adventure. And then you know this portion of Chilean Patagonia is. The fisheries are so diverse, you, you know, you really don't need to fish the same place twice. Um, it's, it's just a very cool trip. But regarding like the fish, what's well, the fish are they're all introduced, right? So um, if you didn't know that about Patagonia, the brown trout and the rainbow trout are not native to um, South America. They were introduced there. Um, I read a whole. I'm not even going to try to quote the history book that or the the quotations that I've read, but um, fish were introduced there and it took some time for their populations to establish and for them to spread out and for these populations to take off. And uh, The trout there don't have significant aerial predators like they do um, most other places. There is no um, osprey, there is no blue heron, uh, there's not an otter as far as I know, um, there is a kingfisher, uh, there's not a bald eagle. Um, there's not most of the predators that we know uh, of in North America, and so these fish are very apt to be able to sit high in the water column, sit suspended, sip dry flies. They 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 will sit even the brown trout a lot of times. You'll see them cruising in these slack in these slack water back channels, just floating around 12 to 24 inches under the surface, just prowling for dry flies, just lazy floating around. It's just like the coolest thing that you just so rarely get to see that in most of the places we fish because the trout are one they're terrified of ospreys and and birds but they're also terrified of fishing uh, pressure because um... we have a significant amount more fishing pressure than they do uh... down there so it's like a little glimpse into how trout would behave um... if they weren't scared all the time uh... is kind of my takeaway from it and it's just a really fun place to fish in that sense i really i look forward to this trip because i get to see like I've been to Russia, I've been to Alaska, I've I've been super blessed to see some really cool fisheries, but like none of them rival South America in my mind because I get to do that really classic late line technical dry fly fishing. Um, I think throwing mice in Kamchatka is just amazing, but it's a bit primitive uh, in comparison to setting down, you know, a, a very small dung beetle limitation to a trout that's, you know, just gently, you know, searching for you know small terrestrials and mayflies and slack water. To me, that's like that's fly fishing. Like the tools that I've invested in, you know, a fine five weight fly rod, a, a fine floating line, a long delicate tapered leader, and seeing that fly set down soft, and then a fish, you know, analyze it, float over and take it. Like to me, that's the juice right there, man. Like that gets me going. Um, I feel like that's a lot more rewarding to me than you know. I'm happy to chuck streamers from time to time, but, but man, if I can have dry fly fishing like that, to me that's that's kind of the heart and soul of the sport. So that's my favorite part of fishing in Chile: is seeing these fish behave like that, and then seeing how they're susceptible to dry flies. Um, my trip uh, kind of went like this: it was long travel down. We got through customs, took longer than we would have liked. It was you know a lot of standing in line. We got through, all worked out good. Only uh, only. When one of the guys on the team, um, you know his, only one of which' his paperwork wasn't airtight. took him a little longer to get through. Um, but other than that, um, pretty much you know, got to the got to the first lodge to Estancia del Zoro. Man, it felt really great to show up there after that long day of travel. You know, have some great wine, great food, um, you know, be around good people and and finally just take a deep breath and be like, we're here. <laughs> you know, it's real. And uh, you know, got settled in there, relaxed. Um, tried to get, you know, tried to get some sleep, you know, after you know long travel down there. But the first day, the group, we all kind of split up, and uh, I was still waiting for one, the guy who who was delayed, Aaron. Um, he ended up having to stay the night in Santiago because he unfortunately uh, there was a bag mix up, and he had to miss his flight, the short flight. Anyway. I wanted to stay on the Estancia so that he, when he got there midday the next day, I was there. So we went Spring Creek fishing that first day. And the Estancia there, when you think of Spring Creeks, a lot of people are thinking like you know, gin clear water, um, spooky spooky fish, um, you know, small Spring Creek type flies. And Estancia del Zorro is a little different. Um, it's spring fed, you know, controlled water temperature, but it's a dirt. It's like dirt based substrate. It's it's this, um, you know very very slow meandering spring-fed creek that runs right through the heart of the Estancia there where we stay and it has trout up to say 28 inches Um, I've caught them up to about 24 25 in there Um, and they're just all thick I mean the, the insect life in this place is just full of scuds it's got weed cover it's a little bit muddy but you know on the Estancia there a lot of the fishing is for me you you could fish like a hopper dropper or a little indicator rig um you know delicate indicator rig with scormy worms uh or scuds or little leeches or even you know mayfly nymphs and that can work fine but like to me there i'm there to fish dry flies and so i fish dry flies pretty much exclusively on the estancia but it's not like you you don't like what what you might be picturing is like drifting, you know, these dry flies down to the fish. And while that would be nice, um, the thing about the Estancia is these fish, are they're re- they don't move much. They sit underneath these little undercuts. They sit underneath the, the weed edges. You know, there's there's like uh, Spring Creek weeds kind of growing in the, in the midstream sometimes. But there's these undercuts, these sod undercuts along the sides where the grass grows out. The bank has eroded up underneath the sod. And these trout just kind of sit there. And so... Fundamentally, you gotta you gotta take your fly to that fish, and you gotta you gotta take it there because you can't drift it there. So how the fly lights on the water or lands on the water is is huge. You have to make good casts. How you approach the creek, if they see your shadow, they see rod flash, they see you. You know, all that has an impact on whether you can fish. And then your patience. Um, as well on the estancia is like really important so what I found is uh, you know you want to approach you know and try to isolate the little cut banks it was it was very apparent that the trout would kind of move over to the shady sides. so there might be like and that might sound really obvious if you're listening like well of course like you know brown trout especially love shadows they love shade but what you would need to do is like even if there was only a few inches of shade you would need to kind of plan your approach to go. Okay, plan A is that little sliver of shade with you know six to twelve inches of shade because there's not a lot of trees. There's really almost no trees. It's just you're out there with these this high, kind of pompous you know. It's like high rolling flatlands um, in in Patagonia, and so there's not a lot of trees. It's all windswept, windscaped, you know, kind of grazing land. And there might only be a few inches of shade, so as you approach, you go, okay, that's plan A, I need, to, I need to fire that cast right up there on that little sliver of shade, because if I get a fish in here, that's where it's going to be. And then you're dealing with 20 mile an hour winds, just constant wind, like, you know, t- let's just say 10 to 20 miles an hour is like very, very common. So like, you have to have a really fast, you know, high velocity cast that hits, hits the water just right, it's got to be accurate. And you got to make that fly look real as though it like tumbled in off the the edge of the shore. So, the casting challenge is like, it's not impossible, but if you're going to be highly effective, it's like, it's a challenge. Like, you got to be on it, you know, as far as accuracy goes. And so, I spent that whole, my whole time on the Estancia, I spent days one there, and then the back end of day three on the Estancia. And... You had to stock that thing, and I'll be posting some videos about it, like a full-blown YouTube. Like, hey, here's fishing at the Estancia with beetles. Here's what it's like. And you had to you had to fish from from back, you know. So I had to like stay off the creek. So a lot of times I had ten feet of fly line laying on the grass. You know, I might make a thirty foot cast. Ten feet of fly line is actually on dry land because I'm I'm staying back, and then. T- 20 feet on the water. And I'm trying to hit those spots with a little bit of wind. So, um, you know, casting accuracy and prowess was hugely advantageous for somebody who wanted to just fish exclusively dry flies. Now, if you want to dip leeches in some of the deeper spots, um, you know, or dip a hopper dropper along those little edges, you know, you could could certainly generate plenty of action, I think. But my goal is like, man, if I can catch six to 10 fish a day, just throwing little beetles, or hoppers, just landing them up against those little shady spots. That's what I like to do. So um, spent that whole day one, um, and and then again the back end of day three, just working that creek, slowly creeping my way up, kind of fishing like a heron, firing those casts in, and uh, you know, like I said, there's all sorts of applicable strategies that that you're using in this high-stakes fishery I can't really describe it because like you're you're just so hyper focused because of the fact that you you put a lot into this trip you are like it's it's consequential you know I'm not like neurotic about it I'm not like hard on myself I don't get mad if I don't succeed but like it to me it's like it's consequential I've, I've got one opportunity to fish this place I've got a week to make the most of it and uh you know I know when to chill out like but I know when to fish hard and I really enjoy that the the pressure of being being hey, hey this is my one day to do this I'm gonna do it right I'm gonna make great casts I'm gonna, I'm gonna hyper focus I'm really gonna put it into kinda of mental overdrive if you will to to make sure and take advantage of these situations and I think the Estancia is like one of those high-stakes destinations I love the concentration and the other thing that I learned there and have learned over time is just patience of uh when you in in patients can culminate in like several different ways there so one of them is you know you you have to plant that fly and it's it's like a seed and you've got to plant that seed and literally the first cast and I I used to know this this guy uh I ran a couple guide trips with him you know, long ago uh, and his name was Chuck Cooper and uh, Chuck, I remember him telling me lots of stories about Patagonia because he would go down there and go fishing in the off season and travel around and just kind of vagabond around down South America and fish a lot of these new places and I remember him telling me like, oh yeah, when you're on those spring creeks, man, set that beetle down, then set your rod down because those trout won't forget about it. They know it's there and if you wait them out, they can't resist you know. I, I just remember him making like one little mention of that and the first fish on Estancia del Zorro I was trying to like get, I'm carrying a GoPro and I'm trying to get my camera set up because I want to document this and man I laid that cast in there and it was a nice cast and I'd only been fishing for a couple minutes and I I'm very realistic with my expectations I don't expect to catch a lot of fish on the Estancia I want to catch a few really really memorable fish but I set my rod down and sure enough, it would took me about 20 seconds or so to do whatever I was doing with my camera and make sure it was ready and I, I frankly didn't expect to fish right away. And boom! Brown trout just engulfs my beetle while my rod's on the ground. Picked it up with my left hand, of course, I'm right handed. Set the hook with my left hand. Fish jumps like two or three times, somersaults around, ended up ended up losing it naturally. Um, but it was like a very uh, stark reminder, like man, you've got to be patient with these fish because that beetle's not going anywhere, and that trout's not going anywhere, and that fly's not really floating along. And it's not; it's such slow water. It doesn't really drift much. In fact, the wind will often, you know, if the wind is historically blows upstream there, and the wind will actually offset your drifts. So your fly might even move upstream in the wind. So patience is really key. In that sense, like you, you got to put the fly in the water, and if it's in a good spot, I'll count to ten brown trout, and then I'll twitch it a little bit. I'll saw one brown trout, two brown trout, three brown trout, four brown trout, so on. Then I'll twitch it a little bit. Five more brown trout. If it's a really really good spot, I might go to like another ten, and then if it if it's not getting any action. I'll very quietly pick it up and reposition it, you know, you know, right, you know, maybe I might move it, you know, two or three feet up the shoreline or or up the stream, depending on where I'm where I'm aiming there. But that the patience required there is like really key and it's like so different than this real fast paced, you know, give me my drift now, give me my trout now, you know, swift water western fly fishing model swift water cool you know we fish a very swift powerful stream out here at reds the Yakima during the summer pushes like very few other western streams i mean it's big pushy almost angry currents um so i get plenty of that but i, I like the patience game of uh it's a little bit more of a chess match you know or a game of chicken between you and the trout as to who's going to blink first the other place you really see patience um you know become a necessity uh, on the estancia is, you might you might walk upstream and, and you just know based on you know data you know on previous engagements or dope. So we'll just use the term dope. So let's say I've got some dope that suggests there is a trout there. Like nine out of ten spots I've been through, I, I've moved a fish or seen a fish in a spot that looks like that. So dope suggests that there's a fish there. And let's just say I throw a cast and it's a, it's a let's, let's say I botch it, because I do that. I botch the cast. Fly hits the water way too hard, my line hits the water, it's obvious it's not just a little beetle falling in, and I just, I know that's not gonna raise a fish. If I know there's a fish there, man, just, just pull that fly out, wait several minutes, and throw, you know, like two to three, four minutes, five minutes maybe, if you know there's a fish there, it's going to take you more than five to walk up to where you think the next good holding lie is. But several times I found myself just pulling out. Maybe that's when I patch up my tippet. Maybe that's when I take flies that are you know loose on my fly patch and put them back in my box. Have a drink of water. Have a snack. Smoke a cigarette if you got one. But just chill out for five minutes and then throw that same cast again. And several times if, if I was confident there was a fish there, that second shot after being patient worked. But if you continue to throw that same botch cast again, you have you you basically have diminished your your odds of catching that fish all the way to zero. So you could do that when you miss a fish. You could do that when you botch a cast but don't underestimate the power of just taking a deep breath and giving that fish, you know, just a little cool off period. And on the estancia, I found that to be a very, very powerful tool. Um, as far as exercising patience, which is like the two things I'm sharing so far, being patient and leaving fly in the water, being patient when you botched a cast, or you, you, you maybe miss a fish. Those are just like mental strategies right there. like. Those don't require you to be a superstar caster. They don't require you to do anything that's superhuman. They just require you to like make good choices, like good mental strategies. So take those for what they're worth. I I think that I I can apply that back home to my home fisheries. There's lots of places that I can slow down, be more patient, um, especially when as it pertains to moving a little slower and a little bit more thoughtful. Um, And then. You know. In, in addition, I'll just you know speak to casting right now. Is learn to throw really tight loops. Um, I, I don't really think that everybody has to double haul to to go worldwide and like be a really you know successful you know angler. And we'll just say successes being able to meet your 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 expect your catching expectations, whatever those are. Um, as long as you meet your catching expectations and you're satisfied, you're a successful angler. Um, stop and smell the roses along the way, Um, but just if you're gonna try to meet your angling expectations just you don't have to be a double haul depending on where your your expectations are at. My expectations might be higher than the average angler because I've been fortunate enough to to get to fish a lot, but learn how to throw a tight loop like something that's aerodynamic, learn how to control that loop so that your fly can hit the deck and land on the water like the second it turns over we're not throwing high hanging curve balls up in the air for you know a, a 10 mile an hour wind even even a minimal wind is 10 miles an hour um, in a lot of these places that we like to fish but when you can control the size of that loop and, and the trajectory um, you're gonna have a lot more control when that's just a game you can play in the front or backyard just learning to to throw that cast so that that rod tip travel promotes an extremely tight loop and that's just practice. Practice is free Learn to throw with velocity. Uh, I fished a nine foot five weight fast action rod. The I threw my four weight just a little bit. I never even did grab a six because um, I, I never did throw big streamers. Um, These fish here love to eat dries, even the big trout. Uh, but I threw a Sagex nine foot five weight uh, the entire week. Um, I threw my Winston Pure four weight on some small water, which I, I love my Winston Pure four weight. It's a beautiful rod to cast. but Nine foot five weight fast action rod with a floating line. I fished that the entire week, um, It worked great. But control the loop, it's not about power, distance or velocity, it's usually about just the aerodynamic approach uh, of that that loop toward the water is gonna be the biggest determining factor in your accuracy and consistency. So um, that was the Estancia, we threw small beetles, um, number 10s, number 12s, uh, the giant Kintaria beetles, um, you know, aren't uh, present on most spring creeks. Those are more of like a a, a bamboo rainforest and jungle type thing. Um, yeah, I would say jungle, but f- heavily forested mountains are where the Kintaria beetle calls home. Uh, kind of more of like the big fjords, the lake districts. Um, you know, where you have these more more glacial <clears throat> environments is where you're going to find those giant beetles. So. Uh, day two, uh, we went over to a river called the Needy Wow River. Um, you know, semi spring creek, semi freestone kind of your traditional kind of rock creek Montana size stream where you can cross at all the tailouts, but there's some deep pools. Uh, we went over there and through we went over there and through hoppers all day. Um, I lost my phone in the river trying to take a, a photo of a beetle in a fish's mouth. Um, it was such a great opportunity to take uh, take a couple pictures went skinny dipping for about 30 minutes never could retrieve my phone out of this pool that I dropped it in um, that was an adventure but had a great time on the needy wow um, you know fish up to about oh uh... we actually caught bigger fish there this time than i have been years past uh... we hiked up a little tiny spring creek tributary and caught browns to twenty inches uh... fishing in a tiny spring creek it's like a, oh my gosh when you see the videos you're just, uh, it'll blow your mind. I mean just tiny water on Spring Creeks sight casting with hoppers. Um, there were thousands and thousands of grasshoppers. I mean incredible amount of grasshoppers uh, in this particular valley. The Nidiyah River runs through the Valley of the Moon. But uh, one thing that I learned over there that you know keep in mind for all of your, your western fly fishing endeavors is man the wind is your friend um, when it comes to terrestrial fishing. I mean it was howling over there but I'm telling you every time we walked along that river and cattle are doing the same thing and, and the, the the alpacas or sheep or whatever's walking along a particular section of the river those hoppers are just getting blown into that water there were so many on the the needy wow system we could just physically see it you know like we'd walk man there would be a half dozen hoppers and wind up in the water uh, but it was just very telling like the guides there they favor the wind like they want those windy conditions it's just because the, the exposure they have to dry fly fishing that we don't, Those guides are, I can't say enough about the guide crew there man, I mean just learning from guys who have experience in seeing fish, be fish without the, you know, in the absence of predators that just the, the observations that they have are, are profound, but um, they want the wind and they will fish They will fish differently um in calm days versus windy days but man when they get big wind you get 20 mile an hour winds 30 mile an hour winds they it's all hoppers all the time uh that time of year there so the needy wow was great um you know just it reminded me that uh sometimes you don't have to have a phone because i lost my phone for five days i think it was uh and I would never need a device to start scrolling on and looking at, which was uh, just kind of refreshing in itself. I think God was giving me an opportunity to just get grounded again, um, which was which was nice. Um, and I focused on using my GoPro and I got some killer video because um, I wasn't distracted trying to do a bunch of social stuff, which was, um, you know, frankly, kind of a relief. But uh great part of that trip was the driving tour back and forth, um, you know, just being able to cruise and drive through the countryside with a guide, get a tour uh hear about the landscape wildlife and a little bit about you know what you know, it's always a great time for captive discussion you know just learning a little bit about what it's like to live in Chile. Um, day three I got my butt absolutely handed to me on the Rio Pedro Goso, which is a little um Freestone slash spring fed, primarily Freestone um River right uh on the Estancia. Uh we took the guides uh four by four and we uh we kind of jeeped Jeep down to uh, the river, and man, I'll tell you, that was a humbling experience. I know guests that have been there in the past, um, when the water's a little higher, that have had fabulous fishing for lots of trout, and, and come back talking about all the trout they caught. I caught uh, one or two trout the whole front half the day. I mean, I was spraying fish out of these pools. I would lay my fly down And if they saw my rod flash, my shadow, or the fly hit wrong, man, I would just see these brown trout. And the Pagergosa has smaller trout on average, like a 16 inchers, uh, a big one. It was definitely one of the prettiest places I've ever fished, but man, it was the most technical. Um, I actually posted, I, I put together a video of just kind of my testimony of like taking the long way around on these pools and just making sure that you do everything you can to keep yourself concealed and keep your shadow to a minimum, and make sure that you you do you go through and you do the hard things to make sure that you set up right. Because like if I'm fishing for 13-inch brown trout, generally I just kind of like to stumble up to the pool. It's low key. I don't want to take it too serious, and I can try to catch a small trout. Well, that didn't work for me, uh, man. Even to catch these, you know, smaller trout. You had to have your A game on, and finally, I I took the long way around. I set up red. I made one perfect cast, and finally caught a fish. And so it was nice to have kind of that humbling experience. Um, And it was definitely one of the prettiest places ever fish. So I'm super glad I did it. But with the water being low and clear, and not a lot of wind that day, um, it just was not. You know, the wind keeps ripples on the water, provides um, chop and and ripple to make you know help the trout feel safe. Uh, But It was also like, I think I got two trout and it was like, I got them in some pools where there was a good number of fish in there and uh, I'll tell you, it was like, you got one fish out of there and that was it. You just packed it up, you hiked to the next pool. Um, It was like kind of a one and done type fishing, it was like, it was kind of how people describe New Zealand to me, I've never been to New Zealand except the fish, it was like, the, the fish weren't nearly as big, but the stakes were just as high. Like you had to plan your approach. You're like, okay, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to make one good cast. And after I make that good cast, I'm not just going to go into like, you know, semi-automatic rapid fire with my cast. I'm going to make one cast. I'm going to wait, possibly change flies, make one good cast. And if I'd taken that approach right off the bat, I would have been a lot more successful, but instead I was just like, I was spraying fish everywhere. So, after that, we went out, we had lunch at the ranch, and then I went and I fished a half day at the Estancia. That was the kind of my, you know, I fished a day and a half on the Estancia, and that was just awesome. Totally different, you know, um, equally high stakes, but bigger fish. Um, and the fish, the water is off colored at the Estancia, um, which is a huge advantage, um, you know, over the Pedregosa. So, I went from like this extremely challenging gin clear spring creek type fishing where I was barely catching anything to the Estancia where you have to make these calculated patient approaches but uh... was just different and I I had a lot more success on the Estancia that day Um, a lot of wind uh... you know so that part was good Um, and uh... yeah the Estancia paid off it was great you know like I said it'll it'll take me a few weeks to get the videos up Um, but uh, I think you'll I think you'll appreciate just what a cool cool fishery it is. Uh, day four's lessons were different, so we we took a raft and uh, we threw a raft in the Simpson River uh, down near the town of Kauaike, and it was kind of more your traditional you know bounce downstream in a in a raft type Western fly fishing experience. Except the highlight and kind of like the takeaway, and this can be applied towards. Straight up, whether you live back east, United States, Western United States, or wherever, um, just the technical dry fly fishing that we encountered. So, like on, on the Simpson River, it's much more. There's there's a mix of browns and rainbows, but it's kind of like they don't have the giant Cantaria beetle. It's a very fertile stream. There's mayflies. There's caddis. There's stoneflies. Um, it's it's very uh, reminiscent of you know some of the Rocky Mountain streams um, and then the rainbows in the Simpson tend to sit real high in the water column you'll get to these pools that might be 20 feet deep these box canyon pools and these rainbows will just sit suspended just right up under the surface and you can see them just sitting a foot or two under and they're feeding on emergers, they're feeding on a few dry flies and you can pick them off you know you could throw a beetle in there once or twice like a smaller beetle or a terrestrial but you might get one fish but they get pretty smart pretty quick and ben we got schooled by a couple of these rainbows and then finally um i was fishing with my buddy winston um i threw on uh, a number 16 peacock soft tackle just a little tiny old school old soft tackle like old fly. Not, not the fly itself is old, but the pattern is old, and I love that pattern. We sell it at Reds. It's tied on a super good hook, and I like it because the hook is like a real nice, stout, real firm, heavy wire hook, so that when you get down in that size 16 range, you do hook fish on it. It'll keep them pinned a little bit better than a real real light, delicate, dry, you know, light wire dry fly hook. But what I did was I, uh, I, had, I put a little floating on it, and I caught a couple of trout with a little floating on it, you know, so it was barely sitting in the film. And that was great. I mean, they ate it at first drift after we'd been schooled on para-adams and some other emergers and such. And then there was one big rainbow, about a 24-incher, the biggest in the group, and man, he was just too smart. He would refuse, he would look, and he just kept sitting suspended and feeding occasionally. And then finally what I did was... I had a real good grasp on where my fly was landing, even without being able to see it. So I, I took and I spit on that soft tackle to kill that floating and make my soft tackle sink a little bit. And then I just threw that same cast cause I'd already pre-measured distance and put that soft tackle on them just under the surface, like six inches under. And they're, they're picky enough that you can't use little indicators and little hopper droppers and stuff. They were on to all that. And man, it was so satisfying to like do some of the most technical kind of that almost like Missouri River headhunter style, you know, you know, spot and stock fishing where I threw that soft tackle, spit on it, put it on there wet, fished it six inches under the surface, watched that fish float up and 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 open up and eat that soft tackle just under the surface. It was incredibly satisfying. It ended up landing the fish, which was just awesome to, to cap it all off. But um, takeaway day four was like those old school. Match the hatch, dry fly fishing skills, man, or or emerger fishing skills, as the case may be here, like really paid off in Chile. Um, you know, it's not you can't always just beat them over the head with big terrestrials and expect them to bite, but it was really satisfying to do some like very classic and classy um, spot and stock fishing. So that was like the highlight, you know, for me of of the fourth day um, was fishing the soft tackle patterns. So day five was a cool trip. Um, we took a, a cataract boat with a little uh, outboard on it and we, uh, we jetted across one lake down a river to another lake, jetted across that lake and then fished the outflow of that lake where it runs down into yet another lake. <laughs> and so we parked the boat at the outflow of, uh, of the second lake and uh, we wade fished about a half mile of river just sight fishing to to trout with all day just fish beetles um there wasn't really a big takeaway that day um you know i think my big takeaway as far as you know skill set goes was just you you got to know when you know kind of when to say when i spent a good part of my day um just looking um kind of filming these big kentaria beetles because we were in kind of like this glacier district now um where there was a be- a lot of beetles present. Um, there were thousands of these deceased beetles that had washed up in the white caps and some big waves and a wind event that had happened. Um, and uh, spent a lot of time just kind of hoofing around, taking a lot of photos, going slow. Uh, and Then later in the day um, I was kind of done fishing the river. I'd caught you know enough fish there and so the guide um, in fact, there was a, a takeaway. Um, the guide ran me back out into the lake, and and we kind of. He said the lake wasn't going to be very good because it wasn't windy enough. Um, you know, you heard me mention earlier talking about the guides. A lot of times, they it's more work for them, but they favor the wind because they know that the trout are cognizant of the wind and and the safety that the wind brings. Not that they're again they don't have predators, but. They like that chop on the water, they like that it moves food around, they like that more bugs wind up in the water when, when an errant gust, you know, suppresses them and pushes them down into the water. So uh, you know, the, the, the wind pushes those bugs in there, and we found, uh, I, I only caught one fish the whole you know time we were in the lake, but we finally found this one real nice brown trout cruising around, and man, I put a couple of beautiful shots on him with a beetle. He had nothing to do with it, didn't like it. Um, he kind of floated away, and it took us a while to kind of relocate him, but he was still kind of sitting suspended and, and cruising just real slow. And uh, I put on a really tiny little flying ant, uh, like a number 16. And um, I've just found that flying ant, when you can see the fish real well, and you know the fish is going to see your bug, that. A, an ant pattern, whether it's a flying ant or a parachute ant, that small size just always seems to be like, man, that's that's just get get 'em fly. Um, it can be hard to see in moving water and choppy water, but when you're in a situation where you can see your fly well, you can make a real accurate tight you know, cast, you know, present it tight to the fish. Man, I put a cast on that thing, and I think I got the hook up and everything on video, so I can't wait to go rewatch it. But having that ant pattern. Like handy and available, and I'm not talking about like buried in the bottom of your fly box somewhere. Um, I'm talking about having that amp pattern. Like, if you're dry fly fishing and you, you think, okay, well, I might find a fish that I is too picky, um, and he might refuse my fly. Don't just beat, do just beat him over the head with that same hop or, or whatever hopper or drop or whatever he's not taking. Throw, show it to him once, maybe twice. The second time, passively, just immediately put that fly on. Don't show it to him six times. I see people and hear about people doing that all the time. And I've done it myself. I still do it myself. It's hard to have that discipline. But if you showed it to him once and he didn't like it, the chances of showing it to him again and him getting to eat it are like one in a hundred. It's just he's already seen it. He did. He chose not to eat it. Very, you know, con, you, know you saw him refuse it. I mean, obviously he approached it. He submarine down, didn't eat put that amp pattern on, so I put that amp pattern on, immediately put it back on him, being hooked him up, it was a really good catch, and that fish was really, really, really old, um you know, we, I did not touch that fish, I just reached down, I mean, his eyes were clouded over, he was just kind of on the, he was on the, the, the kind of the end of days type stage, but it was still really cool to catch a trout that who knows how old that fish is going to be, or is, whether it's ever been caught or not. But I let that guy swim. I did get a little underwater video of that fish um, as the guide was netting him. You know, see, so you'd be able to see it. You know, when I'm able to drop these videos. But uh, yeah, having that ant ready, super key, super important. You know, it was really, really, uh, you know, stoked to have made that decision and then have it all worked out. You know, it feels good to strategically make. You know, not only a good cast, of course, but make good choices and and do something that sealed kind of sealed the deal and and made me successful and then if you're listening to this and you're, you're you're on a guided trip especially in a faraway place like that a lot of times the guides you know they don't they don't know what you're thinking they don't they're not mind readers guides in the US aren't mind readers either but you know we probably read body language and you know things a little bit more effectively than another culture does but you know don't be afraid to make some of your own decisions but it requires you to be able to tie your own flies on Like, it's for me I'm I i do not try to excuse me guide the guide but I'm also not afraid to say hey what about an ant and, and I'll point to my hat and he knows that okay we're not gonna lose track of this fish he can tie it on real quickly it's not a big dramatic change where he needs to anchor the boat and do this to change a fly for you before you go on a trip like this just make sure that you've You've practiced executing tying, you know, tying flies efficiently and tying your own flies on. And I know that might seem like trite or, or like, oh, I know how to tie a fly on, Joe. Well, get good at it a little bit. Sit down before you go on the trip in good light in your easy chair and tie 30, 30 knots in a row. Tie a fly on 30 times in a row. And I will bet you by the 30th one, you've cut your time down by far more than half you're going to be unbelievably fast if you just do it 30 times in a row and I think that is a huge advantage and I'm about to go to Cuba in, in like uh, 11 days and that's a big advantage in the salt is being able to change from you know a bonefish uh, fly to a uh, you know a permit fly or whatever it is to make a quick change instantly where the guy doesn't have to anchor the boat or talk to about it like hey what about this change it get that fish, get it hooked up, you know, mission accomplished. So having that flight quickly accessible, ready to change, and be able to to make some of your own decisions on the go, uh, I think was critical on day five. All right, so uh, day six, um, my big takeaway there, uh, we floated uh, a a big, beautiful river uh, in a traditional, I would say traditional drift boat, but an NRS inflatable drift boat, which was really cool. Um, Those boats are very handy. Um, And uh, the the biggest takeaway, this was the the last fishing day of the trip. I had the option of adding another half day on our departure day, but I was like, man, I was honestly fished out. I was like, I kind of know, I know when I've had my fill. (laughs) So, this was my last day of fishing. And, um, my biggest, like, trip concluder, like, for me, and whether, let's just say you're planning some trips this year, um, and it might be just a little weekend getaway. Maybe it's a trip to a faraway place. You know, maybe you're going someplace spectacular. Maybe you're just gonna spend more time fishing in your own backyard. Um, wherever you're going, like, simplicity to me was like, my biggest takeaway and the the thing that I was most grateful for on the last day. On the last day, I fished one or two flies the whole day. It was all dry flies. I fished the same rod I'd been fishing most of the week. It was a SageX nine foot five weight with a Lamson light speed reel. Probably my my favorite all around trout setup. If I had to choose one to be buried with at this at this moment, that would be it. You know, maybe some other day I'll fall in love with another rod, but I really like that Sage X and I, I was able to fish my favorite rod. I, I kept nice fresh tapered leaders on my line, which I know that might sound insignificant, but there's something beautiful about the way a, a fresh tapered leader that's a, you know appropriately matched to your fly size, the way it unfurls and it lands on the water. And just the simplicity of saying, I'm going to fish dry flies and nothing else. I'm not stringing up another rod. I'm going to bring one more rod for backup, but I'm going to leave it in the tube. And this is the decision I made and there might be fish that decide they don't want to eat, you know, my dry fly, they might need a nymph or they might need a streamer, but I'm keeping it simple and if a fish doesn't want to eat that dry fly, I'm a, I'm a you know, a qualified caster to just keep moving downstream and let's find another fish. And that was the attitude that both, you know, my fishing partner Winston and I had uh, on the trip. Uh, was just let's just fish dries, let's keep moving, let's keep it simple, let's have fun throwing these beautiful fly rods that we have. Um, his favorite rod of the week was a sage trout light line. Um, and so you know, we each got to throw our favorite rods all day, just dries. We caught enough fish to keep us really happy. You know, the dry fly fishing was great. It would have been easy to try to catch some bigger ones on a streamer or you know, uh, you know, hopper dropper system, which the guides down there they love the hopper dropper because you can. You can take that hopper dropper and you can shove that nymph up into kind of some hard to reach places. But I just love that that just the if when you when you make the conscientious decision that you're just gonna fish dries or you're just gonna fish this or that, it's like a burden gets lifted from you. And uh, to me, last day I was super grateful just I'm throwing dries the whole time. So when you plan trips this upcoming season, if like maybe your goal is to get better at your own I'm just making stuff up here, but if your goal is to get better at euro nymphing, or get better at using you know hopper droppers or get better at streamer fishing or just dry fly fishing just like hey I don't want to tangle I don't want to change flies I don't want to snag up much just make that decision and go for it it's okay catch less sometimes you catch less what I have found is by the end of a couple of days of fishing I've caught more because I get to spend more time in the water and I get better at whatever discipline that I'm focused on so Day six, grateful to just be throwing dries, sticking with dries, not worrying about some of the fish we left behind. There was lots of feeding fish and fish sitting suspended. We could have thrown emergers, a little nymphs at, left them behind. It's okay. We'll get those guys next time when they're ready to come up for a dry fly. So um, you yeah, know, it was a great trip. You know, hopefully this podcast is helpful and and I'm you know, I've kind of got a new system of how I plop down to record these, and it's going to be a little easier to find time to do them. So I'm hoping to get them done every two weeks this year. Um, but thanks for joining me. Uh, as always, you know, follow Reds, shop at Reds. We would love to help you out and get some business from you. It's, it's part of the reason we do this, And um, in addition to just being a labor of love. So uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you.